morning we're going to be in John chapter 19, and the last time we looked at these six trials that the Lord had to endure, even before the crucifixion, um, they were unfair, they were unjust. This morning we're going to look at the sixth trial that the Lord endures before Pontius Pilate, the sixth and final trial. And this morning I want to focus on justice. Justice. What is justice? Well, before we get into that, we're going to talk about how justice affects the trials of Jesus, okay, and the crucifixion, and how justice also affects us in light of the cross. Every society, every functional society desires justice. But I want to focus on one aspect of it. If you look in the dictionary and you look under justice, there's like five, six, seven, depending on the dictionary, uh, examples of what justice is. Well, this one in particular that I want to focus on is the rewarding for doing good and the punishment for doing evil. And I will submit to you, based on your reaction to the next thing I'm going to say, that we love justice. It's ingrained in us, and we'll talk about that. So there's a truck driver. He's on the road all day long. He's in a tractor trailer. He finds this little diner in a remote part of this deserted place. He gets out of his tractor trailer, and he's a very small man. He goes into the diner, and uh, he orders a whole lot of food because he hasn't eaten since the morning. He's really hungry. So he's got all this food in front of him. And here's where the scary music comes. Three men in a biker gang, <laughs> these burly men pull up on motorcycles, and they park their motorcycles outside the diner. And they come into the diner, and they see this little man, and they, they're going to have fun with this guy. They taunt him, they say things to him, they push into him. One guy even takes his food and starts eating it. So the man, the truck driver, doesn't say much, and he continues what he's doing, and then he decides he's going to pay the waitress and, and be on his way politely. So, you know, he gets abused for a while, he gets up, he pays his bill, he goes outside. And the three bikers are sitting at the, the counter and they're talking to the waitress and from her vantage point she can see out the window. So the, one of the guys says, well, he's not much of a man, is he? And she says, well, that might be true, but judging by the looks of it, he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles. <laughs> see, you like that. <laughs> we love justice. That's why Batman does so good at the box office, because it, it, it transcends the corrupt, oftentimes, jurisprudence system, and he always rights the wrongs, right? And they tap into that unwitting desire for justice. Here's the only caveat to justice. Justice looks really good on you guys. For me, when I get in trouble, if we all do the same thing, what do I want when I get in trouble? Can you guess? Mercy. I want grace. I want you guys to get justice. Same crime, I want mercy and grace. But everyone thinks that way, and that's the problem. See, this is where justice breaks down, because we all want leniency for ourselves, but we want that justice for the other party. And as we look at this this morning, Jesus goes through these trials, and he's innocent, and he doesn't get justice at all. However, we deserve punishment for our sins. We've offended a holy God. But what do we get? Mercy and grace, right? So this morning, we're going to look at this great travesty of justice that was not good for Jesus, but it meant the world to us. It meant everlasting life to us in this room. So starting with verse 1 in John 19. 
So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they, crucify, or they, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And we wonder how he gets crucified if the one with the power finds no fault in him. So this is what's going on. Jesus was just at Herod's place. Pilate saw him briefly, the fourth trial. He realizes that things that Jesus did were in another person's jurisdiction, sends him to Herod, thinks that he's done with this whole problem, this Jesus problem. Well, he's not. And what happens is Jesus comes back to Pilate for the sixth trial. And probably in a move, if you think about it, if you follow all four Gospels and take them together, in a move to evoke sympathy for Jesus, he has him scourged. I have to explain to you the Roman scourging. There were different levels of scourging. And what would often happen is they would take their victim and tie them to a post and spread their back. And then they would take this whip and they would put pieces of bone or and pieces of rock, and pieces of metal, whatever they could find in these, these whip with all these tentacles to them, and they would whip their victims. And what they would do is uh, they would give them so many lashes. However, if the, the victim, or the, in their case, their understanding, the criminal, started to confess their crimes to Rome, then what they would do is they would take the whip and they would go a lot lighter each time. It was, a, it was an incentive for you to confess whatever crime you committed. However, Jesus had no crime to commit. Now, I don't want to read too much into the story, but I could just imagine the, and they probably found the most sadistic person to do this, you know, this is what's his job. You know, he went to work in the morning and this is what he did. He beat people to evoke a confession out of them. And I could imagine, if I can read into it a little bit, the person who was doing this thought, well, you're not going to say anything? I'll just whip you harder. If it's going to be a battle of the wills, I'm holding the whip. You're going to lose. So with each stroke, he probably was out of breath, just whipping Jesus as hard as he could, tearing apart the back, the tissue, the skin, and there's not a whole lot of fat back there, exposing the rhomboids and the spinous processes down his back, and these things were in blood probably splattering everywhere. Because Jesus had nothing to confess. He didn't do anything wrong. No doubt the captain or the soldier went to Pilate and took him aside and said, he didn't say anything. We beat the tar out of him. He's a bloody mess. He didn't say a word. There's a scripture that goes with that as well. And we're going to read that. But I want to focus on this. The religious men, the spiritual men, had no sympathy for him. Pontius Pilate's not a hero. He's a foolish man. He's a worldly man. He's a vacillator. He's not a good leader in many respects. But the sad thing is he's showing more compassion here than the religious men. This is why that system was such a mess. The people went there to find hope and they found none. All they did was extract money and extort it from the people. And you see that today in religion at times. But what's really tragic, even on a personal level, is when people of faith show less compassion and mercy than a believer. 
How many of you are familiar with the, the Christian group Casting Crowns? Raise your hand. Oh, so a lot of you. How many of you have seen the video, Does Anybody Hear Her? A lot of you. Okay. What I love about Casting Crowns is, you know, and some of these groups, they go into the Christian genre because they know they can tap into a, a, a money supply in addition to their secular stuff. Not Casting Crowns. They, they tell a story, each one of their videos, and the, mu the music is awesome. But you see this video of a, a young lady who's obviously in the world, doesn't dress appropriately for church, and she goes through life really trying to find God. And she's turned away at every turn by church people, looking at her a certain way, ignoring her, being involved in their clique. At the end, some, one person finally takes notice of her. But folks, sadly, since I've been a Christian, I've seen this in the church. I've gone to church, many churches, and this stuff exists. Again, what does this have to do with Pontius Pilate and the religious leaders? Well, on a small level, if we're not careful, we can fall into this as well. Looking down our nose at others, where we feel that now we've become something because we're in the faith. And now we get to look down our nose at the very same things that we did before we were saved. Self-righteous, sanctimonious. It's ugly. It's really ugly. Personally, I would take a person who comes into church and says, I've made a mess of my life. I need to find God. I'd take that any day over a snobby, unfriendly, sanctimonious Christian. Now, this is why I won't be on the radio. <laughs> and this is why we will never be a megachurch. Because it's very easy for us to look outside at those people and point fingers. But judgment starts in the house of God. Okay, you know, and, and we're going to talk more about that. So the religious leaders provided no hope. They worked the crowd up into a, a frenzy, mob mentality. Very sad. Now we get the, to the part where the soldiers abuse the Lord and twist a crown of thorns on his head. And the Greek word for thorns is acantha. This is pyracantha. <laughs> My wife has this planted in different areas to keep the different chickens and stuff from getting her prized possessions and her vegetation. It's got thorns on it. And if you want to come and take a look at it later, that's fine, but just be careful because it'll cut you up. Acantha means thorn. And in these beautiful leaves, you, you find these three-quarter inch thorns, and they're like little daggers. If you've done a little study on the Middle East and in Israel and what grows there, you'll find that thorns grow all year, all year round over there. And these type of thorns, and I've seen pictures of them, are like two inches, three inches long. So it wasn't a pretty little thing that Jesus had. They gave him a nice little halo. They abused him. Most likely the Roman soldiers wore some type of leather gloves when they handled these thorns and twisted it around his head. And probably tens, if not a hundred, of these little daggers, an inch, two inches long, were, were thrust into his face and in his scalp. And I'll tell you this, facial wounds bleed a lot. So he, he probably was a bloody mess at this time, and, and they thought it was sport. However, these guys had no idea what they were doing. The Bible's very clear. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that one day, at the sight of the Lord, in his presence, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The glory of God the Father. So Jesus even to, this, to the point where he's on the cross, says, Father, don't even hold this sin against them. Let's, let's move that one away. 
You know, it isn't about me. I'm dying for these men. Amazing. And this is, this is our example. But I have to tell you that prior to my conversion, I was dumb too. I said some dumb things. And I shudder. You know, I just picture myself in different scenarios and things I'd like to forget. You know, maybe at a party holding a beer, slurring my words, going, you know what the Bible says? Stupid. Stupid. Right? I have the benefit, I guess I could say, from being in the world and then being in the Lord and seeing the difference there. Okay? You may have friends and family members who mock you. Don't get mad at them. Don't get angry. You know, Stuff you see in Hollywood. Uh, they're make, making fun of the Lord. Always around Easter time, Resurrection Sunday, they do these dumb skits. There's, there's a recent one I don't want to bring too much attention to. Pray for them. Because they're like dumb beasts. They have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea who they're messing with. And Jesus never retaliated because he showed them mercy. He died for their sins. But one day he's going to come back and those who have resisted salvation all this time will be judged for their sins. The Bible's clear about that. How many times did Pilate say about Jesus, I find no fault in him. I find him innocent. And he still gets crucified. There was something about Jesus made an incredible impression to Pontius Pilate. And if you study Roman and Jewish jurisprudence systems, it was, it was, they were very fair. As a matter of fact, they prided themselves on finding who was really guilty and who was really innocent. They were so uh, prideful about their, their system, how they would not condemn an innocent person but they would not let a guilty person go free. And Jesus, in this unprecedented case, both systems fail him because the, the, with the prophecy and what God's plan was is that our souls would be saved by him going to the cross. You could almost picture this great paradox of justice. You could almost picture the father and the son. Man has sinned. We have to come up with a plan. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the basic picture, and there's more to it. Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross, maybe when one society in a remote area was using it, who knew what the cross was? Being thrust through with the nails. All this detail about what was going to happen seven, eight hundred years before it occurred. The time period, the political system at the time, all the prophecies just lining up. Jesus really should have been stoned to death because of the rage of the Jewish leaders, they wanted him terminated. How many times did they try to get rid of him? But the Bible said that he would be crucified, not stoned to death. So it's almost as if the father and the son were talking, and the father says to the son, here's your mission, if you choose to accept it. Go down to the earth, get yourself in a whole lot of trouble for doing good, love people until you can't love them anymore, and let that cause you to be railroaded through both systems and be crucified. Have them completely abandon their fairness. That's a pretty tall order. Sometimes we, we take for granted what we've been given in the form of, of that substitutionary death on the cross for us. But if you really follow the intricate details, it'll make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. 
and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So this, the leadership, the Jewish leadership is flip-flopping, whatever. We'll throw everything at the wall. Something's got to stick. You know, we, he's blasphemous, but he's treasonous, but he's blasphemous. Let's keep throwing stuff out there until somebody finally crucifies this guy and gets him out of our hair. They were so vengeful that they didn't consider him as the son of God. Now, here's the irony. Pilate did consider it. What if I'm crucifying a God? Well, what did you say? He said he was what? A son of God? I could just see him scuttling back to the praetorium, trying to hold his composure together, asking Jesus, where are you from? Are you a titan? Are you a god? Are you a hybrid? What planet are you from? Answer me. And Jesus gives him no answer. The pressure is mounting for Pilate. You say, well, I don't understand this. I read these gospels. It doesn't make sense to me. This guy's all over the map. Of course he is. When you start following history, when you follow the Bible, you take the gospels together, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Pilate had pressure from the crowd. He had pressure from the religious leaders. He had pressure from his own conscience. Then he also had pressure to save his own skin, and that's what he chose. Pilate was a man of the world. Now, when we look at this, it's not this time that we've been in a difficult position, haven't we? If you live long enough, the difficult positions start to mount up after a while, you know? And the question is, what do we do? Do we take the easy way out? Do we take the way out that saves our skin? Or do we do the right thing? Now, if you're new to this, you need to consider the Lord Jesus Christ and what impact, what impact believing on him will have on your life. The religious leaders blew it. Pilate blew it. Don't follow in their footsteps. You may come to this church and say, oh, I like the music, the people are nice, they're friendly. You know, I like the preaching. I, I kind of feel like I'm maybe even being entertained. You know, the pastor said something funny in the beginning. I feel like I'm in a movie. I'm, I'm getting entertained today. But here's the point. You're in the movie. God isn't calling me to salvation. I've already, I'm already saved. And I'm not going to lose my salvation, the Bible tells me. Many of these people this morning are, have been called or, and, and have received of that salvation. If you've come into this church, wow, I see the parking lot is full. This must be a happening place. You're in the movie. The spotlight is on you. Whoever you are, I don't know who you are. I don't know any the hearts in here. I can only see the expression on your faces, and it doesn't tell me a lot. If you've come into here this morning and say, well, this is, I'll try this church. God is calling you through his word. Jesus didn't die on the cross for no reason. If good works could save you, why would Jesus go through all this? Well, we just... Just send, a, send an angel, give us a message. Hey, 51% good works, over 49% bad works. You're good. You're in. It doesn't work like that. The Bible is very clear. Jesus came to die for your sins. So this morning, if you don't know the Lord, consider what he's saying through his word. Verse 10. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power? or authority to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From that point on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. 
Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. I love the Lord's answer. I love the Lord's strength and determination in all this. Pilate is saying to him, listen, I can grant you clemency. I'm the governor. The only thing that stands between you and crucifixion is me. And Jesus says, not only that you're in sin, Pilate, but the one who delivered me, take heart. He's in a worse sin than you are. He's revealing the sin of this man. Now you wonder why he tried to release him. Think about this. The governor, always, all these prisoners stood. He stood between one by one, these prisoners and that cross that people feared and were terrified. They heard the screams as they passed by on the road of the crucifixion victims for days being hung out there in this hot sun. Nobody wanted to go there. No doubt, one by one, these prisoners these, would come before Pilate and you know, worship him as a god, prostrate themselves and hold his feet and say, please, please have mercy on me. Jesus is like, you wouldn't even have any power unless it was given to you from above. And by the way, you're in sin. <laughs> so you wonder why he tried. He, there was something he saw about Jesus that changed him. Unfortunately, in the end, he, he chose the, the wrong decision. But I look at this as the principle of the aperture, like an aperture in a camera. It lets lights in. It lets light in and determines how much of that film is going to be exposed, depending on how much light is let in. If you know the Word, and you've read the Word, and you've read the Bible, there's no excuse. If you don't know much, like Pilate, well, he still sinned, and he still answered for his sin, but it'll be less. So Caiaphas, these religious leaders, memorized better than I could, I guarantee you. <laughs> Numbers 22. It probably could rattle it off. You know, Deuteronomy 12. They could rattle it off. Caiaphas has the greater sin. James 3.1, even his teachers, the Bible says, will be hold to a stricter judgment because we should know better. Verse 12, the leaders say to Pilate, if you let him go, you're no friend to Caesar. Later, again, they say we have no king but Caesar, vacillating really literally between two gods. Caesar as a little god and really God with um, big G, you know, the only God. And they're going back and forth. You see, the religious leaders had an allegiance to whoever was taking care of them. Their allegiance was to Caesar at times, to money, to power. And you know what God did? Eventually, he removed his protective hand from that spiritual system, allowing it later to be destroyed. By successive Caesars, oh, we have no king but Caesar? Sure, here you go. Remove my protective hand. And Caesars start the Roman wars. I believe Nero started it in 66 AD. Roman War of 66 to 70 AD. Destroying Jerusalem, destroying the, the wall. 1.1 million people were killed mostly Jews, as a result of the evil of the false shepherds. There's nothing worse than religious hypocrisy. And God, we ask the question, well, why does God allow that? Why do I see that? The guy's obviously a crook. He keeps getting away with it. The Lord will eventually deal with it. And to the discerning uh, receiver of religious hypocrisy, it's odious, it's foul, it's loathsome. Actually, if the Lord did annihilate the Romans, the courts, Pontius Pilate, these guys would jump right in with them because they wanted a Messiah who was a political Messiah, who was going to vanquish the Romans and free them. Actually, the religious leaders were looking for a God in their own image. Suffering servant, Psalm of the Cross. Okay, let's put that aside. I like the one about him coming in glory. I like the one about him defeating his foes. No, no, no. they all go together. 
God in their own image. And I have to tell you that I think I see it more. And, and this is why I mourn the loss of Dave Hunt, because he would expose false teachings. He was a great, for decades, he got a lot of heat for doing it. But there are a lot of false teachers today. Pastor Paul actually put a, um, an article about some pastor who wanted to make a name for himself, wanted to get his face in the newspaper, so he could say, well, Jesus was wrong about marriage. Oh, really? If you're a pastor and you think Jesus is wrong about anything, being the son of God, you need to find another profession. But they're all over the place, clamoring for the cameras, clamoring for an interview. Rob Bell, you know, love wins, no such thing as hell, remaking the doctrine of hell. Wittingly or unwittingly, bringing some into that place by his foolish doctrine. Christianity doesn't need any more sellouts. It's got plenty. It doesn't need any more false teachers or false preachers. It needs people with a backbone. And I found this. If you stand on the word, initially people may despise you. But if you stand on the wrong word, if you stand on the word long enough, they'll eventually realize, well, you're not moving and their life is still unstable and they'll come back. They'll come back. They'll see that light. They'll see that determination. They'll see that God is with you. So I would encourage everyone here, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an evangelist. Just be a Christian. Stand on God's word. That's what the church needs more of. Not looking for a God in our own image. Not saying, well, society is changing, so we're going to remake God. Hell is offensive. You know, churches are losing people. But there's a lot of other reasons for that. Tell people the truth and tell them about the love of Jesus. Before I was a believer, I made a God in my own image too. However, it didn't work. It didn't get me anywhere. I choose to follow the immutable. That means unchangeable. He doesn't change. We change because we're fickle, but he doesn't change. I'm the present. He's everywhere. Omniscient, all-knowing, right? What's the other one? There you go. I'm the present, omnipotent, all-powerful, okay? Those four characteristics of God. That's the God that we serve. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him to them to be crucified so they took Jesus and led him away. Now, Matthew 27, you've got to take all the Gospels together, and I know a lot of people, this is a very famous part of it, where uh, Pilate actually washes his hands, literally, and says, I am innocent uh, of the blood of this just person. But Pilate split, split the difference. He knew that they were going to go back to Caesar, and he's already been in trouble once before, and he really didn't need the problems politically. So he consented to it, but he did it in a way where he tried to put the onus and the blame on them. So he washes his hands, but it doesn't absolve him of his sin. See, we should be willing to do what's right no matter what the cost. And the truth is, I I haven't all the time. We're going to fail, but that should be our standard. Now, there might have been times where we've washed our hands of things, or even as believers, figuratively washed our hands like Pilate, instead of really getting a backbone and standing up and doing the right thing. Verse 17. 
And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. This is where we're going to stop for this morning and finish it up next Sunday. Matthew, Mark, and Luke add more information. Okay, What they add is that there was somebody called Simon, and he was a Cyrenian. And he helped Jesus bear the cross. Now it says Jesus bore the cross, and then it said that they compelled Simon to bear the cross. The Romans could take their spear and tap you on the shoulder and give you some task to do. Under penalty of law, you had to do what the Romans said you you had to do. If a soldier did that, I imagine a lot of people tried not to be in spear distance of a Roman soldier. So they probably tapped him and said, help him bear that cross. You know, come on, we've got to pick this up. We've got to get this moving. Remember, Jesus is suffering from... uh, volume contraction or hypovolemia where he's lose a lot of blood right he's his body is starting to be expelled of the blood and at a certain point uh it starts to affect bodily functions actually some movies have this very dramatic if you ever watch it and honest, honestly i don't think we really know how many times did he fall down how many times did he stumble how many times and and they've done very well artistic liberty but we really don't know however it must have been very difficult for him because they had Simon helping him. And it doesn't say that happened with the other guys. Now, a brother in this church gave me permission to share this. He actually said at a men's function in front of 30 guys how he lost his child. His child passed away and how very difficult it was for him. And he said, I was tempted, especially beginning in the beginning, to just to not be able to get out of bed. I was depressed, I was overcome with grief, And he said, the motivation for helping me get out of bed and get up was the fact that when Jesus went to the cross and he stumbled and he might have fallen, he was my inspiration because he kept getting up and he made it to that cross because he thought of me. I was very, you know, I was very, you could have heard a pin drop when this testimony was, was being spoken of. That's the effect that Jesus Christ has on people. Now check this out. In Mark 15 and Acts 16, which I've covered before, Simon the Cyrenian apparently had two sons, Rufus and Alexander, who became part of the church. What was it about Jesus in that short amount of time that that Simon saw in Jesus that he eventually becomes a believer and his children become believers? Again, with the blood loss, with the beatings, with the swollen face, did he just look into the Lord's eyes and just see, wow, I've never, you know, was it his mannerisms, was it his behavior, was it a short discussion that they had? So look at the effect right now that the Lord is having on all the characters, these historical characters, on Pilate, on even the religious leaders, bringing them, driving them to a rage. Did you ever try to share the truth in a non-confrontational way, just in a relaxed way? People get mad at you. They curse at you and they, they say nasty things. And if you're at a social event, they just move to the other side of the room. They don't want to talk to you anymore. It's like, what did I say? I just want to tell you about the love of Jesus. They get mad. You know? (laughs) Okay, so some of you have experienced this, not just me. Jesus is a very polarizing figure. 
However, he has, an, uh, he has an effect on everyone that he comes in contact to. And I would ask you this morning, don't waste it. If your heart is being stirred up, if you're reading it, if you're starting to think and your, your mind is starting to... All you want to do is come into a nice church on a Sunday morning. I didn't expect that now the focus would be on me. It's between you and the Lord. He's calling you. You know, don't ignore it. Don't run from it. Isaiah 53.12 says that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was, some have speculated, it's actually very fascinating when you look at some of the conjecture, between two robbers that might have been, check it out, in the same band as Barabbas, who was released when it came to either Jesus or Barabbas, which we covered the last time. And one of them comes to faith, and I don't want to give too much of it away because that's for next Sunday. So there was a placard in three languages, Hebrew, the, the, the language of spirituality, of religion, of Greek, the language of philosophy, and of Latin, the language of the law. So in a sense, that placard was a tract. And the Jewish leader said, no, you've got to change that. And he's like, I'm not changing it. It was his last dig to the religious leaders. But that was a tract. Wow, king of the Jews. Let me check that out in the scripture. Maybe some came to Christ through that. I just want to read Isaiah 53, and then we'll, we'll close... actually starting with uh, Isaiah 52, and some of these things will stand out to you, okay? Starting uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Remember, this is written seven, eight hundred years prior. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall, remember, this is going to speak about the present time when Isaiah was, was prophesying. It's going to speak about the future and a, and a future even further when he comes in the kingdom. So some may say, gee, I'm a little confused by that. That's because God is outside of time and we live in linear time. So, you know, try to hang in there. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. For he had no form or comeliness. Today, even ministry is based on beauty in, in the United States. Not according to Jesus. I guarantee if you have a, a picture of Jesus and he's drop-dead gorgeous, he probably didn't look like that. You know? He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray, have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Father has laid on the Son, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Again, seven, eight hundred years before Jesus even comes to the earth. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to crush him, but has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Now, before anybody starts saying, well, you know, we can talk about the Masoretic text and the Septuagint and all that jazz, friend of mine who's Jewish, I said, give me the American Jewish Bible Publication Society officially sanctioned Old Testament. I took it, I read this, it's the same thing. And he actually looked at me and he goes, wow, never seen that before. He says, I'm not ready, but he goes, I can't argue with you. Not arguing with me, I stand on a word, you know, it's right here. Why does Jesus eventually get crucified? Because of a very complex political situation. Pilate is interesting, but he's typical of the world. He determines Jesus multiple times to be innocent, but he doesn't act on it. However, God's providence and fulfillment of Scripture still had to take place. Isn't that amazing? God knows that we're going to sin. He has that foreknowledge, and he can still use that to his glory. And, and we scratch our heads. We've been doing that for 2,000 years. Man's free will, God's sovereignty. They work together. They're friends. But Pilate was still responsible. Pilate finds Jesus fascinating, but self-preservation, and I say that in this world, had dominated because he was foregoing his self-preservation in eternity. And I'll tell you this, on a small level, we can at times be tasked with meeting out justice, maybe on a very small level, or we can please the crowd mob mentality. In addition, we can face justice for our sins by not acting on the evidence that leads to belief in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We keep talking about justice. Again, I don't want justice for me. I really don't. When I come stand before the Lord, I just want him to say, well done, thy good and faithful uh, servant. Welcome to the joy of the Lord. And yeah, your sins have been paid for at the cross. I don't want to discuss anything. <laughs> I mean, he's God. We can talk about anything. He, he sets the agenda. We'll, whatever you want, we'll talk about. But quite frankly, I don't want to talk about my sins. And you know what? I don't have to. Because all the filth that I've ever committed and will commit has been paid for on the cross. So we can forego our justice that we deserve and face God and have to deal with the, the, the truth of our sins if we refuse to believe in the sacrifice that he offered for us. We can straddle the fence in life. We can try to sp split the difference, as Pilate did, and fail. But just remember this. Just remember this right now, as you're thinking about this, as you're considering it, as you're thinking about, well, how am I, how's my spouse going to take this? You know, selling it to somebody at home, but I'm, I'm in the middle of finals. But as, you're, as you're starting to think of all the things, but you know that this is something that you should lay hold of. If you're tempted to vacillate, waver back and forth, just remember, when it came to you, Jesus didn't. He went to the cross. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. It's beautiful. Lord, we, we can take scripture and go back in time and go forward in time, and we can be on this wild roller coaster ride of, of your prophets and future and the past.